Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter, the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Hello and welcome to Garden Success. We are looking forward to talking to you today. We will hope you will give us a call or perhaps uh, send us an email. Uh, we, uh, if you want to reach me by email, it is gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Uh, by phone, 845-5689. If you're calling from outside the area, it's 979-845-5689. We look forward to visiting with you about whatever's of interest to you. Uh, I think there's a lot of things going on out in the landscape. We'll talk about a few of those things today, uh, but mainly I like to hear from you and answer the questions that, that you have, because I can pretty much guarantee you if you've got a question, someone else has that same question as well. So give us a call. Let's talk. Uh, let's go to the emails to begin. Uh, we had a question that came in from Kim, and it was about fertilizing. And I may have talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, but I'm going to go ahead and go back to it because it's a question that I've gotten more than once. Uh, the question is, for our woody ornamentals, like a tree, for example, an oak tree, or maybe a crepe myrtle, or a rose bush, uh, should we be fertilizing those in the fall? And in general, I would say no. Uh, the plants are slowing down. Uh, now the live oak, of course, is, is going to be pretty much evergreen. It does a leaf switch out in the spring. Uh, but the rest of them are losing their leaves, and we would like them to slow down and go dormant. And uh, Not that if you put a little fertilizer on them, they're going to grow in the middle of winter, but uh, we just would rather not encourage any late-season growth in the event that the particular plant was a little cold tender, and then you ended up... Uh, taking it uh, away from its normal progression into winter hardiness. Uh, so I w and, and also, it, it, there's just not a, a big benefit to doing that. Now, earlier, uh, I was talking about fertilizing roses back in August, but that was more of a shear them, give them a little fertilizer to support the new growth, and then we get the regrowth in September and a beautiful bloom season in October, and that's a little bit different situation. But at this point in the season, I, I don't think I would add uh, additional fertilizer to them. Just wait and watch. You know, most of our, most of our plants uh, that are woody ornamentals don't need a lot of fertilizer. And if you've got a young tree that's, that's uh, let's say, in the first five years after planting, maybe you could make a case for 10 years, and you want to boost it along a little bit, a little bit of lawn-type fertilizer is just fine. Uh, you're not uh, going to change the world with it uh, because most of the research I've seen on trees, uh, it's just not this huge response to fertilization like some of our other plants might be. Uh, and there's a lot of nutrients there uh, already in the soil. You know, if you've got a lawn around the tree and you're fertilizing the lawn, you're putting quite a bit of nutrient down there for your trees as well. So that would be uh, probably in a nutshell, uh, Kim what I would have to say. Let's uh, go to the phones, and uh, we're going to talk, let's see, Ed? Are we talking to Ed? All right. Hello, Ed. Yes, hi, this is Ed. Yes. Yeah, I had a couple of questions. One of them is, I did email a question earlier, but uh, about 
overseeding clover into the sparse patches of St. Augustine. Right. I, I read that some people are beginning to do that. I just wonder if it's advisable and what variety would go well that would grow low. That's a that's a good question. I am not aware of any turf specialist that would recommend uh, in a home lawn overseeding clover. Uh, there are some clovers that are a little lower. The the one we call burr clover that stays down kind of low, or there's a medic that looks like a clover that stays down pretty low. But uh, if you if you're mowing the lawn, that is. But you know that's that's really essentially like putting weeds into the lawn. If you were to talk to your turf grass and ask it what it thinks, it would say, "Well, why would you plant weeds around me?" And I understand the the thought is that the clover is protecting the soil and it's probably putting some nitrogen down in the ground. But it wouldn't be number 1, it wouldn't be a uniform application of nitrogen. So if there was such a benefit, then your lawn would not be uniform in its color. Uh, but I just don't think I would do it. Uh, if you had an area you were going to plant and some other crop, like a vegetables or flowers or whatever, uh, maybe in the season before you start planting, using some sort of legume like that might be in order. But my opinion would be not to do it. Okay, great. I had a, I sent an email with some pictures. I don't know if you got it, but uh, there's uh, a volunteer cucumber-like plant that came up. Okay, has this been a while? No, I would have emailed it about five oh. minutes ago. Oh, okay. Yeah, let me go look. Yeah, I see. Mm -hmm. And this was volunteer. The flowers look like cucumber. The leaves look like cucumber. But this fruit, and, and it was not among in a cucumber patch. It just grew up. Is that a known variety of cucumber or curcubit? That well, it looks a little bit like something that they call a lemon cucumber. And don't let the name for you. It's not tart like a lemon. It just is orange and round, roundish. Uh, and it could be that. It also could be just a reseeded from who knows what. Yeah. Uh, I had a question like this a while back and I did a little research on it. I can't remember now what, what we finally came up with. But uh, you could try, you know, tasting a little bit. It is a cucurbit, but just see what you think. It, it looks like a lemon cucumber, sort of. Uh, pretty close to it, or just ignore it. I think at this point in the season, it's right. it's soon to be gone. So, okay, great. Yeah. Well, thanks uh, a lot. Oh yeah, good. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Uh huh. Bye. Bye bye. All right. Our phone number is eight four five five six eight nine. Give us a call. Let's talk about things that you're interested in uh, in the garden. I was looking at some other emails that came in. We had one from Suzanne and a picture of a really pretty tomato and then one, uh, a bunch of leaves that have black spots all over them. And uh, so, the, of course, the tomato that looks good is, is in no, there's no problems with that. The uh, tomato that uh, is, uh, the, the bla black spotted leaves looks to me like a bacterial type of spot. Now, without, you know, getting it into a lab and having our, our uh, state lab culture it out and determine exactly what what it is uh, that's a best guess and and diagnosing from photos is always a little bit of a stretch sometimes it's easier than others but uh, in general we always have to have a caveat of yeah this is just a photo so here's my best shot I think it looks like a bacterial spot it doesn't look fungal uh, at this point in the season I don't know that it's worth doing anything about anything on a tomato 
it is uh, we are soon going to be cooling off they're going to slow down to essentially a crawl uh, the only goal is to get them to a green mature stage before the first frost because uh, then you can pick them and they'll ripen inside on the counter uh, but other than other than that uh, that would be my assessment Suzanne uh, of those tomatoes and by the way that's an attractive tomato that you've got uh, in your photo that you sent uh, I'm I'm impressed uh, looks very the the leaves on the one look very very healthy well, let's go back to the phones and the phone number is 845-5689 and we're going to talk to Roy hello Roy hello I've I've got a plot about 20 by 20 a landscape bed that I've put in some a landscape fill and I got a bumper crop of nut sedge and Bermuda grass yeah. and so I've tried uh, uh, solarizing it I've never done that mm -hmm. I've, I've had it solarized now uh, through August and so far in September how long do I solarize that we are kind of past solarizing season so you can pull that off uh, it was this clear plastic or what did you put on it Clear plastic. Clear plastic. Six, six mil. What did you see underneath it, since you can see through that plastic? Tell me how that went. Did you see a bunch of well, weeds come up or not? Things look, things look dead. Yeah, the, the green stuff's brown. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it it didn't harm anything for to do that, and you probably got a lot of weed seeds. The nutsedge tubers, if they're more than about four inches under, I don't think it would have hit them at all. I could be wrong about that, so I guess you know time will tell. Uh, but they're uh, they can put some tubers down a little deeper and make it a little hard for the solarizing to effectively heat it up to a point of killing them. Now weed seeds, like the nutsedge, does produce seeds, so you you probably uh, did a pretty good job on those if it heated up enough. Uh, but that nutsedge. But how is, long? How long should I leave it? Well, during. During hot, hot weather, you know, upper 90s to 100 degrees for about four to six weeks, that would be what we'd be looking for. In a full sun, uh, hopefully no big cloudy days and rainstorms and through there just to, because that just delays things, uh, delays the effectiveness. Uh, so that would be my recommendation. Now, the, the nuts edge, this happens a lot when we get some soil in, and uh, it, I'm, I'm amazed at <laughs> how persistent that stuff is. Uh, I knew someone once with a pier and beam house that I don't know how long the house had been there, but they dug a bunch of soil out from under it and piled it up. And when it rained, it looked like a big chia pet with nuts edge all over the place. It's just been sitting there waiting yeah. for a chance to get some water. Um, so I, I would resort probably in your situation, there's nothing planted around it, right? There's nothing growing in that soil that you want. I might try some of the different products that will control nuts edge with repeated applications. Uh, nothing I'm aware yeah, of I've is going to just I've wipe got it. Image. I'll just images, on. yeah, image is good, and uh, then kind of watch it. Um, you know, you could rototill it or plow it or however you're going to do it, and after it's died down from the image. Uh, and then you probably have to hit it again. It's important to hit it now going into the winter. That's true of any of the perennial weeds. Uh, have them take that product down in there and really set them back before winter, if not kill them outright. And then in spring, you're probably going to see some more. And it may 
be not just that you didn't kill all of them it may be there were some nuts that hadn't sprouted yet and now you're seeing them so don't don't lose heart in the spring but when it comes up once it's got three to five leaves i would i would spray it again yeah i planned to uh, that it's, it's right at the point of a lawn that's kind of kind of good older voice uh, uh-huh. I, I planned to plant it in uh Esperalo. how how far apart should i plant those to make it a solid bed Hesperalo? um uh-huh. well when you say solid you know the the clump. Well, we're just where there's good coverage. Yeah, pretty good coverage. I would say probably then put them foot and a half, two feet apart. Maybe if you want okay. it, if you want a solid coverage fairly quick, that clump will spread, but it takes time for it to spread. So, the trade-off right. is spending a whole lot of money on a whole lot of plants, or putting up with the plants being separated for a much longer time. You know, the arching, arching leaves on that hesperella are gonna they're gonna reach over and touch something five feet away but uh it's i think from what i'm hearing maybe two feet would be should i go ahead should i go ahead and plant it now uh, before winter yes you could and and you know the more i think about it i'm gonna back off that two feet a little bit Uh, i i was thinking in terms of trying to get it just wall-to-wall plant in there i think having a little bit of space i just want a pretty good stand of it okay there's a bit on the a&m campus that i saw that i Okay. Well then, yeah, I would go out and look at that bed and see how close it is. But I would, I would say three feet, four feet would would probably be okay if you just want an attractive stand of it, and that'll All save right. you a Thank lot of money. <laughs> yeah. All well, right. I've got I've got quite a few of them that I've nursed along over the years. Oh, good. All right. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Thank you for the call. Our phone number eight four five five six eight nine eight four five 5689 or by email at gardensuccess at tamu dot edu gardensuccess at tamu dot edu had a number of questions about applying pre-emergent for herbicides and about fall fertilization and so I'm just going to answer them most of them is just one uh, question and that is that uh, pre-emergent herbicides would be applied now for the fall or cool season germinating weeds. So the calendar doesn't mean much to a weed seed. The weed seed cares about moisture and temperature and things like that. Uh, but I would say that usually about the third and fourth week of September, we need to be getting a pre-emergent down by then uh, because the weed seeds will start germinating. They could... that. The fourth week of September could be too late in certain years for certain weeds. Weeds are not all exactly the same. They have the temperatures that they do their best germinating at. Uh, So, but about now is a good time to go ahead and get it down to prevent all the cool season weeds that you might deal with. And those would be things like henbit and chickweed and carpet weed, uh, the, the clovers that come up in the lawn, um, a lot of other things. There's a little grass plant called um, uh, bluegrass. It's a weed, uh, and it it's not a annual bluegrass. is not a an easy one to control. Uh, the things that would control your broadleaf weeds, which are all the others I just mentioned, are not going to work as well uh, on it. As far as as far as fall fertilization, you can also do that now, or you could wait a little bit and do it the first week of October. Um, 
it doesn't there's not a, a cutoff date there into when you do it the goal is to get a little fertilization down not a lot we're not trying to make the lawn turn back lush and emerald green again because the grass with the slowing uh, the cooling and the um, shortening day length and whatnot is going to be slowing down anyway and it's going to stop uh, producing a lot of new roots and so there's not a big benefit to fertilizing any later than that. Uh, if you can get a little bit of nitrogen and potassium, that's the first and third number uh, down on the ground. Um, those two uh, go into the plant together uh, or they work together to help uh, build winter hardiness uh, in a plant. We don't live in an area uh, that where St. Augustine typically is winter killed, uh, but it does create a stronger plant so when it comes out in the spring it is more vigorous. And a lot of people think about you know going out in February when there's certainly a lot of fertilizer for sale uh, and putting a fertilizer down to wake up their lawn and make it grow. Well grass coming out of the cool winter season is very slow to get moving and there's not a lot of new roots that are being produced to take up all those nutrients. And so about the time we've mowed twice, and you keep hearing me say in the spring fertilize after you've mowed twice, uh, about that time it's growing actively and the fertilization helps. So why am I talking about spring? Well the question is about fertilizing in the fall and when you create a strong grass plant going into the fall it's going to come out stronger in the spring and there's research to support that. Uh, and so this would be, I, I once uh, talked to a turf specialist many, many years ago. He, he felt like the, the fall fertilization was the most important one of the year. I don't know if that would still be something that uh, our current specialists would, would agree with, but it can be a very important fertilization. So anyway, that's, that's the, the nickel and dime of it on uh, fall fertilization. Our phone number is 845-5689. 845-5689 or by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu gardensuccess at tamu.edu uh, see we want to talk a little bit about uh, an email that came in about some some soil that was dug out uh, to widen a driveway and it's a black uh, uh, black clay uh, that similar to what you might see in some of the areas around here. Uh, and the question was, it doesn't mix well, and it's how do you break it up so you can mix it with your sandy soil? Well, mixing clay with sand is not generally going to be much help. You're going to end up with a lot of clay clods that have sand stuck to them. Uh, and so I don't know that it's going to be super helpful. Uh, if, you, if you can catch a clay at the right moisture, you can break it up. Uh, when it's dry, it's like concrete. You can't break it up. When it's wet, it's just like modeling clay. It's a goo, and it just it's what makes it stick to our feet when we're walking across it, and you try to dig a hole, and you can't get the clay off the shovel so you can dig again. That's too wet. So in between those is a friable stage, generally, depending on the chemistry of the clay, that where it, it breaks apart. Now, if you could catch it at that stage, uh, rototilling and mixing may help a little bit. But I think, uh, depending on what you're wanting to grow in your sandy soil, John, I would, um, I would just probably use uh, composted organic matter if it's a vegetable or a flower bed or something like that. 
but with the right work, you might get a little benefit out of that. Well, let's go to the phones now and talk to Greg. Hello, Greg. Good afternoon. What's up? Well, under the uh, slow learning <laughs> process, slow <laughs> learner, uh, we had planted some of the tall, very cylindrical, skinny, I uh, guess they were cypress trees by our driveway, and they, they after several years of success, they all died back from the, I guess, the canker. So meanwhile, about seven years ago, I planted the Leyland cypress. Yes. That's that right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and it was growing very well. Planted it primarily for a uh, to, to hide from the county road, hide part of our yard, mm -hmm. and and it occasionally had the brown limbs, and I thought, oh, that's bad. But I would just prune them out, and it wasn't making it too ugly. Well, then this this summer with the drought, and then the, the I guess the August rains, it went completely brown yeah. within a matter of probably a week, ten days. Yeah. Well. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but um, the, both the Italian cypress that I think you were describing first, yeah, and then yeah, the, yeah. and then this Leland, which are not as closely related as their names infer, but uh, the they both are prone to canker-type blights of the scaly-like needles that they produce, and uh, especially with the Italian cypress, when you when you have a dead area, it doesn't come back green again. In other words. You could take a normal tree and take your pruners and cut all the leaves off and the ends of the shoots, and it would just re-sprout from the branches and the trunk and everything else. And the cypress, the Italian cypress you described first, doesn't do that. Uh, and so when you got a dead area, now you just got a big, ugly dead area. And that's that's the main reason why we don't recommend them. Uh, if you go to the Mediterranean, you see these big, beautiful Italian cypress, and they just look wonderful. Uh, and then people want to recreate that here, and I certainly understand that. Uh, but um, they will break your heart. Even if you get by with it for a few years, then one day something comes in and every other one or three in a row, you know, go out and uh, you you can't replace them at that point without it looking, uh, you know, short and tall, short and tall going down the row. Uh, and, and the Leland's the same way. It's a great tree. In fact, they grow them as Christmas trees in, in East Texas. It's one of the species that is used for a Christmas tree here. Uh, but when you get a big one, it'll make a great windbreak and a great block, and then something like that hits. And you just, you know, the, there are fungicides that can fight diseases, but you're just not going to get out there with the kind of equipment to spray a large tree. And usually by the time you would get out to do it, it's a little too late anyway. Yeah, this, this tree had grown to probably eight, nine feet tall. I mean, you're right. It, it had almost a Christmas tree look. Yeah. But, and and I was prepared to, to lose it over a period of time and, you know, maybe trim out some of the bad spots. But yes. I was very, very surprised to see the super, the rapid, complete decline. Yeah. Yeah, the complete decline is a little surprising. Usually we end up with a pretty marred plant in both of those species we've been talking about. Uh, it doesn't just generally kill the whole thing outright. Now, there could be uh, drought can can do things like that to a plant, depending on the soils and any water it did or didn't get. We we were hot for a long time and very dry for a long time. Uh, and if it well, well go ahead. What, what other question is down down an adjacent county road driveway, or a guy planted a bunch of I'm not too sure what type of pines, but well, let's just call it like a generic pine tree because mm -hmm. he because he, he just did it well. They all grew fairly well, but now probably one or two of them a year out of maybe 12 or 15 
are dying, and I suspect it might be that pine bark beetle or something of that nature. Can that possibly translate to the to the cypress? Uh, so, it, first of all, if if those pines were isolated from other pines, I don't think it's likely that the pine bark beetle came in. There's actually, I think, five different bark beetles that will attack pine okay. in Texas here, uh, maybe more. Uh, and they generally, you're going to find that in a forest where there's a population that can then have outbreaks, uh, but you just go out to some place and plant pines, typically we don't see that. Uh, there are needle blights that can attack a pine. There are, are branch cankers that can attack a pine. Uh, and a young pine uh, that hasn't had several years to establish uh, is, is very prone to drought injury, and that may well be what what hit those. Well, these, these pine trees have been there for probably close to 15 years. Okay, well, and, that's, and, yeah. And, so, and, they, and now, and, and I didn't see any of them die probably five to six years ago and now there's now they're dying at a, like I say one or two per year yeah uh, there won't be there won't be any left in another couple of years <laughs> well the the way to tell you know if you want to check to see if it's a bark beetle then when you walk up to the trunk just look around there's going to be a lot of globs of a whitish colored sap and there will often be a hole in like you drilled a hole in the middle of the white glob of sap or you may see sawdust uh, that's kind of catching in the bark as it's pushed out of a hole higher on the trunk and it falls down. Uh, you may see signs of that. And those would both be indications of boring ins or could be indications of boring insects in the tree. Uh, other if, not, if, not, if not that, possibly the canker you mentioned the, on, on the pine? Uh, yeah, generally that doesn't kill a whole pine, though, like you're describing. Okay. Uh, there is okay. one other thing. If, he, if they planted those from a container-grown tree, uh, pines are not tolerant at all of, of circling roots. In fact, almost all trees hate that. And what happens is maybe it was a large pot, and they put it in the they pulled the plant out and put it in the ground. Over time, and you're talking about a number of years, and this would be enough years to accomplish this. The root gets bigger and bigger, and the trunk gets bigger and bigger, and the two come together, and essentially the root just becomes a woody band strangling the trunk uh, the the flow yeah. of nutrients up and down through the plant and uh, is 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 inhibited by that and we see that on container grown plants I, I always encourage people to think twice before planting a living Christmas tree uh, if they're grown right if you handle them right maybe but in general I think I think it doesn't end up with what you dreamed it would become okay uh, well anyway. it's yeah, that's really hard. I hard know I wasn't around when these were planted. The, the guy bought out like a nursery and planted pine trees and some Chinese pistachio, then also a whole bunch of crepe myrtles. And the, the crepe myrtles have done well, uh, you know, with very minimal, uh, you know, attention. But mm -hmm. the pine trees and even the Chinese pistachios have, have kind of started to come and go. Well, your, your continued description is making me more confident that this is a girdling root problem, or at, at least I would put that high on the list. Uh, plants uh, can sit in a nursery, and instead of being sold and move on, they may spend an extra year or two there, and that's when that problem becomes even more marked, marketed in terms of being a significant, I call them time bombs. Uh, we see it with Brett. Uh, like, yeah, like you're mentioning, I mean, this would, these, these are... 
probably approximately 15 year old in the ground yeah. plants so i didn't know well there's a number of factors you know how big was the container and but what also happens right. is maybe they started and i'm just going to make the make up a scenario they started in a one gallon pot and you had a little spaghetti size root going around it and then they moved them to a 10 gallon pot and you had a little root going around that and then they you see what i'm saying there can be roots right. within the within the system or within the root system that are kind of buried away now but it happens to fast growing trees a lot the bradford pear is one that if if it sits in a nursery setting for a few years because it doesn't sell, it's going to be a time bomb, about an 8- to 10-year time bomb for Bradford Pear. Okay. All well, right. none, of, none of that kind of relates, I guess, to my poor old Leyland Cypress, but I, I, will, I will not be going back to the Leyland Cypress tree. <laughs> All right. Well, if you decide to plant another tree, give us a call. and Well, a call ahead of time. <laughs> I'd be happy to help right. try to direct you to something. Thank you so much. Thank you, Greg. I appreciate that. Our phone number is 979-845-5689. And uh, you can also reach us by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And let's go to the phones and talk to Dan. Hello, Dan. Hi, Skip. This is your number one fan. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, thank you. Uh, I have a question about uh, pear trees. Uh, so we have a pear tree that we planted probably about seven years ago. Uh, the question I have is, are pear trees grafted? Because one small branch coming off towards the bottom of the tree, probably about a Coke can in width, yes. produces regular edible green-sized pears, Okay, where the rest of the tree going up 10 feet tall produces what I think are Bradford pear clusters that mm -hmm. are just real small and brown little, and never little get brown big. marbles. Yeah. Okay. So yes, they are all grafted. Uh, they're grafted okay. onto actually your observation of Bradford pear is true because they're grafted onto typically onto Pyrus caleriana rootstock, which is what Bradford pears genus and species is. And uh, they they don't use the variety Bradford to graft onto, but they use that same genus and species and uh, so you need to cut that off and if, if, if it's gone a long long time that may involve a big saw or a chainsaw to get it off there but it'll never amount to anything and it will compete with your your main tree so um, I would in the at this point I probably give it until winter winter and then when you do your winter pruning make those cuts to get rid of that is it so the Bradford part I would say is probably 90% of the tree oh okay um, so, so is that like grafted incorrectly or did no I just... no okay. they 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 typically bud uh, fruit trees because you can do a lot more with smaller amount of of uh, propagating wood that of the desired variety uh, grafting can be done but for a company trying to grow um, a thousand fruit trees and sell them and make money taking the time to graft is just not economically feasible in most most cases and so those are budded and when they bud there are other buds on that rootstock that they budded and and they're budding down low but the other buds sometimes will take off and grow from below b below the graft or below the the bud that they put on 
So as, as a person only worried about one tree, um, do you think it would be feasible for me to take cuttings off of the, the eatable, edible pear portion and graft them onto the, the branches of the main Bradford part? Uh, it's possible. Uh, the, the, I, th- I think you're just how you said is the, the, uh, the rootstock is about the size of a Coke can. Is that kind uh, of, that, that's the branch of the edible one, the, the edible. branch, the, the branch of the, the Bradford one is probably almost two Coke cans wide. Okay. You know, I mean, for, just for fun, you could get up in there and do some budding and grafting, um, but it it would it would take several years of working over that top to end up converting it over. And I don't know. I think I might <laughs> I might just get me something else. And and if you want to bud and create you a new tree, you could do that. But it's always good to have different varieties. Uh, some pears will produce without a pollinator. Sometimes the neighbors have a, a different tree for pollinating. Uh, but in general, it's good to have more than one variety so you can have cross-pollination. And uh, so I might go that route. Okay. Great. All right. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll probably just try it and see how it goes just for fun and experimenting. Yeah, yeah and if you <laughs> want to play around and you know somebody that's got a pair that's a different type, we'll take some budwood from their, their tree and bring it to your tree, and now you can have a tree that grows more than one kind of pear. But I wouldn't mess with the rootstock side. I'd cut it off. So oh, that, okay. that would be maybe a, something as you're playing around just for fun, trying stuff out. Okay. All right. Uh, well, thank you very much. And by the way, if you want to learn how to graph, there's a lot of good information on the Aggie Horticulture website showing different types of graphs and buds and how to do it. Excellent. Thank you very much. You bet. Thank you, Dan. Our phone number is 845-5689, or by email, Garden Success at TAMU dot edu. Garden Success at TAMU dot edu. Uh, Brian emails about a uh, um, Schumard oak that is uh, looking like it's got some problems and was wondering if maybe that could be oak wilt. And I don't think it is. It doesn't look like uh, symptoms of oak wilt. And we don't have a lot of, uh, you know, active oak wilt centers here where when a tree starts going down, we suspect that. Uh, it could always, everything's a possibility. What do they say? Never say never. But uh, that would be one of the last things I think of when I see oak problems is oak wilt in this area. It can occur, and it has in the past, but it's not. Uh, you go to central Texas, a whole different story. But anyway, I think this uh, on the trunk, there's a little bit of weeping on the trunk, and that's just from some type of a wound. It could be a pruning wound. It could be where something bumped against the trunk. Um, and it also could just be a stress crack or uh, the kinds of cracks that occur in a hard freeze like we had uh, February, uh, February a year ago. Um, so I wouldn't worry about that. A young tree like that ought to heal over uh, pretty fast. The other thing we see is that the, the branches or the leaves down lower on the tree have brown curling tips and edges. And then further up the tree, they're just fine. And that is probably uh, maybe some um, irrigation water that's maybe a high pressure on the 
on the spray head. So instead of sprinkling water, you get kind of a mist that rises up. Could be related to that. It could be related just to a lot of irrigation. Our water is high in sodium, and, and so that, that can be hard on plants as well. But overall, I think your tree looks great, and I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, I, I have seen what you're seeing on your tree where the lower leaves are curling a number of times this summer, uh, but that's not a disease. Uh, if it was a disease, it would be you would expect it to be all over, uh, all over the tree. Uh, so anyway, there's also, by the way, a bacteria that gets into the plumbing of the plant, um, and it's one of the reasons why all of the vinifera types of grapes that are so famous for winemaking in some parts of the world uh, don't grow well in the Brazos Valley. Uh, because it's this disease, uh, it's this bacteria that gets in the plumbing, can also get in the plumbing of other plants. And that is a possibility. We see scorch sometimes on sycamores, and we see scorch on oak leaves at times. There's just a lot, a lot of different plants that can get that. But in general, it doesn't pose a threat to the life of the, in this case, your Schumard oak, uh, at, at least not according to what I've seen so far. Our phone number is 845-5689-845-5689 or email gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Uh, Tom emails a picture of a weed that is growing like a little spreading carpet uh, over the grass. And uh, this weed is uh, very um, common in our area. It's called spurge. And there's a number of different types of spurge. Uh, but they tend to spread flat. You may have seen, even in like a decomposed granite uh, pathway, a little weed that just goes flat uh, all in all directions and, and looks a lot like this too. Uh, but the way to tell it, one way to tell it's probably a spurge is to break a, brand, a stem off, just pull a stem, and then watch. And if you see a white milky sap come out, that's probably a spurge that you're dealing with. Uh, spurges are warm season broadleaf weeds. And so we're about to end the warm season. And this, these weeds are already reproductive. They're blooming and setting seeds. I don't know that you're going to get good luck with anything trying to control them now. And I also don't know that even if you killed them, that that would be a, a big gain because they're going to be going away anyway and they probably already have viable seed. There's a product, and I, I generally don't like to recommend brands uh, because we're not here to promote any brand or company. But sometimes when you start saying all of the the uh, ingredient names, especially with a radio show, uh, it, it's kind of mind-boggling as to what that means. And I, So I'm just going to mention that there is a product um, called uh, Monterey Spurge Power. It's one of the Monterey's, one of the many uh, over-the-counter homeowner chemical companies that are out there. They have or products that are synthetic and products that are organic on the shelf. Uh, this one uh, works uh, against spurge and other broadleafs, but you want the temperatures to be 80 degrees or below on your, on your lawns, and so we almost never have that. Uh, but we're getting to that season pretty quick here. So coming out in spring, if it was 80 degrees or below and you, you saw some, you could use that on it. Uh, but just be aware that when it heats up, a lot of the good broadleaf weed control products, good meaning effective, um, they uh, 
will also weaken your St. Augustine. We have enough other issues. We don't need weak St. Augustine uh, for sure. There's a, there are products that contain something called Gallery uh, that they different brands will make products that contain Gallery, but uh, that's a broadleaf weed preventer. And so I think your best bet would be uh, well, let me back up one more step. The best bet is to grow the densest, healthiest lawn you can by proper mowing, watering, and fertilizing. But where you have weeds, where sunlight hits the soil, I would consider a pre-emergent with a product like Gallery uh, that would prevent those seeds from sprouting and coming up. And I would, I'm not able to memorize every weed and every product that's out there. Uh, and so I would want to check the label to make sure that a gallery type product is specifically also labeled as spurge for spurge, one of the one of the weeds that that it effectively controls. It's good on broadleaves, but that doesn't mean it's good on every broadleaf. So if you want to email me at the AgriLife Extension office, we can go look into it a little deeper, or you can go to a product that sells a place that sells a number of different products and brands, and uh, tell them you're looking for something like that, and then you read the label and see what it says you can use it on. That'd be the best way. Well, let's go back to the phones. Our number is 845-5689, 845-5689. Uh, we're going to talk to Waylon. Hello, Waylon. Hi, Skip. What's up? Um, I was wondering, uh, I'm uh, planning on planting some trees in my uh, front yard, and I was wondering the best time of year to plant trees. We are just about to enter it. Um, I like to do it in mid-October. You can plant them a little earlier. You can plant them a lot later if you want. But uh, starting in about mid-October, we get a cold front and kind of take the edge off the heat, you know. We're, here we are going back toward 100 degrees this week, right? Uh, right? So let it cool off just a little bit. And if you plant then, the plant has all winter and spring to establish a root system in order to get ready for the hot summer. And that first year on a newly planted woody ornamental like a tree or a shrub or a woody vine, that's a, that's a touch and go year. And so the biggest head start we can give them, the better. And so that I would say this we're entering the season when as we enter into what you would call fall weather uh for planting okay um and uh i'm i'm just gonna give you a little bit more information i'm sure. I'm planning on planting uh magnolia and i was wondering if that's that's a good tree to pick for this area uh you know it it generally is not now if you had a sandy soil uh and it was very well drained uh magnolia would grow uh, in a heavy clay that's a high pH with high sodium water, the, the magnolia is not going to be real happy. And I know that's probably disappointing because they're beautiful trees, very unique trees. Uh, and you'll see some around that are doing okay. But in general, I wouldn't put it on the on the top of the list of things to grow. Now, there are a couple of, of um, compact, I, I was going to say dwarf, but they're not really dwarf. They're just a little bit compact in their growth habit. Uh, magnolias. One is called Little Jim, and we see those used around homes where they have a very large flower bed. And there you've brought in this nice soil to make this raised flower bed, and so that's kind of an artificial setting where they will do quite well. Okay. Uh, yeah, I've got that, you know, black clay yeah. in my yard. So. Yeah, so um, if you were determined to do it, I would get some organic matter, bed mix type stuff, and I'd pile it up 
and then I'd mix it in a little bit to the soil and then pile up a little bit more. I, I, I don't know, make a bed or make a big pitcher's mound out there uh, and sure. plant it on the top of that, and that would give you a better shot. But if it's the big, giant southern magnolia, its roots are going to go so far or potentially go so far way beyond that that even that amounts to not much amending. Okay. Uh, do you have any trees that you'd uh, recommend? planting? Oh gosh, there are a lot and it depends on, you know, what you want out of them. I don't know anything that would essentially be what a magnolia would be in terms of evergreen, broad foliage, especially that broad of foliage. Um, I'm looking for shade trees. Okay. Well, a number of good shade trees out there. The red oaks, if if you've got a decent soil, uh, then they can be very good. Uh, there are a, there are a lot of different red oaks, and sometimes uh, certain ones that I'd like to recommend are kind of hard to find here. So I don't want to just frustrate people by saying go get something you can't go get. Uh, the Schumard is commonly used, but uh, there are some that are a little more tolerant of, of wet conditions, like the Nuttall oak, N-U-T-T-A-L. If your area clay area is a little bit low-lying, that might perform better for you there. Uh, okay. The... Um, uh, let's see. Uh, Chinese elm is used all over the place. It's the one oh, yeah. with the gray and rusty colored bark. It makes a very nice large tree, a very beautiful tree in time. With any elm, you get free weed seeds uh, every time it <laughs> every time it produces seed. And that doesn't matter if it's our native cedar elm or what. They just drop seeds, and so you get to pull them out of your flower beds here and there. Uh, that's the thing people don't like about elms, but... You know, right. everything has a drawback. Uh, a cedar elm is extremely tough, and so if you've got a very difficult site and can't do much to amend and help it, uh, cedar elm is a good tough one that will grow here and tolerate that kind of thing. And then uh, the Montezuma cypress uh, is a good, if you like the look of a cypress tree, uh, don't plant a ball cypress, plant a Montezuma cypress. They don't produce knees like the ball cypress does. And so with our heavy clay soils and wet conditions, those knees come up and and you get to play um, uh, target practice with your lawnmower every time you mow. Right. Uh, What do you think about uh, planting uh, cedar trees, like eastern cedar? You know, I think they're good. Uh, There's always the drawback of, well, cedar produces a pollen that people are allergic to, but they're already here, so I don't know that, you know, unless we put five more trees in every yard in town, I don't know that we're making some huge difference in the pollen in the area. Uh, And it it blows long distances, too. Um, But cedar, if you go out in the wild and look, they survive under horrendous conditions, and they do very well. They're, They're very resilient. And so I will recommend them for, especially if someone has a little piece of property and they want to line the road uh, but but create a, a screen where you don't see it, you know. Now, eventually they'll get very tall, but they look like little Christmas trees when they're young, and then they eventually fill into a nice-sized tree. As long as you don't prune all the lower branches, it'll make a nice windbreak or a nice uh, blocking of a view. All right. Uh, and one last question. Uh, do you have any uh, recommendations for a fast-growing tree? Um, I think the ones I mentioned are, are pretty fast-growing. The Chinese elm is fast-growing. The um, um, red oak, when I say fast, I should say moderately fast. Uh, if a tree, 
is extremely fast growing, it almost always is not worth having. Uh, it's weak wooded and it has issues. That's true of almost all the really fast growing ones. Uh, there are some trees that are notoriously slow. By the way, cedar is fairly fairly slow until it gets established. Uh, the bur oak is a slow oak to grow. Uh, but if you take a moderately growth rate tree and you give it water during hot, dry summer spells, uh, a little bit of fertilizer here and there the first five years, uh, you can get a good, decent rate out of it. And the best thing you can do for a tree if you want it to grow fast is keep the grass as far away as you can. A big old mulch bed that kind of looks like the forest floor makes a tree very happy. Uh, and you just keep adding new leaves or mulch or whatever you're using to the top uh, and uh, let it rot and create that environment and that will really spur growth. If you let grass go up to the trunk it will be half the size of a tree that had a very wide grass-free area in about five years. I actually didn't know. Uh, that's why, you know, there's so many mulch areas around trees. Yeah, I well, and most people just mulch enough to keep the lawnmower away, you know, a four-foot circle or something like that. I'm talking about right. a much larger area. Uh, when I was going through my grad school and pomology here at NM, I uh, remember uh, seeing a pecan orchard and part of it, they killed all the Bermuda grass in the field, and the other half they left and mowed the Bermuda grass. And after five or ten years, I can't remember how long it was on that one, it was amazing the difference between pecan trees that were weed-free and pecan trees that were struggling against solid Bermuda grass around them. Was that a research project that they were doing? I think it was, but that was a long time ago. <laughs> I won't tell you what right. year, but it was a long, long time ago. I'm sure it's been done more than once, though. But just think about it. What it, you know, trees grow in a forest. They drop their leaves. They create a beautiful soil uh, for the future decades, if not uh, centuries, of that forest. And so that's what they want. Well, all, all right. right. Thank you very much. All right, Eddie. Thank you for the call. Bye-bye. Our, Our phone number is 845-5689-845-5689 or email gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Uh, and we're going to go back to and talk to, is this another Eddie or Eddie Eddie? Okay. Yeah. Hey, hey, Eddie. <laughs> hey, I don't know. You Like my dad used to say, you can call me anything, just don't call me late to eat. I'll, so, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> What's up, Ed? We had... Uh, in April, mid-April of this year, we had some yopon trees uh, planted from that big nursery between College Station and Houston. Okay. And they seem to be doing very well. You know, we put the recommended watering when it was hot and, you mm -hmm. know, all the juices and things that they sell. But they're laden with berries, which I think is a good sign. Mm -hmm. But the thing that worries us just a little bit is where the berries are the most abundant on the tree, mm -hmm. the leaves begin to turn a little bit yellow. Now, I don't know if it's because of the proximity. The berries are starting to turn yellow because I assume mm -hmm. they're going to turn red eventually. Yeah. Now, I, should, should we be worried about them? Well, it's not unusual for burying plants like hollies, which yopon is a, is a type mm. of holly, to uh, get a little yellowing on them. And sometimes it's due with, if it were some of the other hollies that are more at home in a, in a semi-acidic, uh, foresty uh, area, uh, 
we add a little bit of iron uh, to supply them. Just putting iron on the ground is not probably going to help and probably not needed for your yopon. Uh, I would just uh, just you know keep an eye on it and watch. I maybe if I saw a photo, I'd say otherwise. But I don't. I'm not real alarmed by that right now. They're yeah. also new plants, so they don't have. How long have they been in? Do you say is it a year? Well, since April, but, you know, we wanted to, you know, have that uh, instant gratification. Yeah. So the ones that were put in were about eight foot tall. Okay. Well, so, they have a limited root system still, and they're working on that. And so right. I would, as they get through this winter and go into next spring, I bet you don't have the degree of problem that you did. Okay. Right. Now, then, then it's just a, a wait and see and keep an eye on it. I'll try to send a photograph in to you uh, or to you and let you look at it and then we'll hear your response next week but uh, I think otherwise you know that nothing looks like it's dying right. you know we water them all that regularly being that we've had you know fairly good rains yes so kind of leaving it um, you know as it as it comes so we'll we'll see how it goes but we'll we'll get a picture off to you and we'll hear your response next week all right good thank you sir thank you bye-bye appreciate the call i uh, got time for one more our number is 845-5689 845-5689 if you'd like to call uh, let's see i was gonna send something here okay randall asked about what kind of shrub is over there in aggie park and he sends me a picture and it's these very upright narrow shrubs that have very uh narrow little leaves all up and down the branch and that is a podocarpus u y-e-w podocarpus u uh, that podocarpus is uh, one of the few plants that makes a good vertical screen in our area uh, yopan can be pruned that way uh, southern wax myrtle with some moisture can also do that, uh, not as tall. But Podocarpus gets kind of tall, and if you take care of it, it can make a decent screen. So if you've got a little uh, place where you want a, a green wall to hide the view or to maybe create another room in the landscape, Podocarpus is good for that. And I guess that's why they picked them over there for for uh, Aggie Park, but that's what they are. Uh, let's see, I had a question come in from uh, Kyle about St. Augustine grass uh, and also Bermuda grass. Uh, the, um, the question was, what do you do about Bermuda grass that gets into the flower beds? Or, excuse me, I'm, I'm misreading here. It's St. Augustine grass getting in uh, to the flower beds. Uh, well, either way, I'll answer it. Uh, St. Augustine lives just on top of the ground. And so if you take an edger and cut it loose and pull those cut loose ends away you know you cut along the edge of your bed you can get the St. Augustine out really easy and it's not going to pop up somewhere in the middle of the bed. Bermuda grass uh, also lives on top of the ground but it is also a submarine and it goes underneath the soil and it'll pop up here and there and yonder all around and so it makes it very hard to control. Uh, the best way in a typical garden bed, we're talking about a flower bed, which is what Kyle was asking about, is products that are grass-only weed killers. And they'll have names like uh, Grass Be Gone and, um, let's see, I don't know. I, I can't even think of all the different brand names that are out there. But they don't kill broadleaf weeds, 
and therefore they don't kill our broadleaf flowers. Uh, they kill grasses. And so uh, that would be one option to do. Another would be to put some sort of a vertical barrier in the soil. And initially that's going to be a lot of work. Uh, but you're, you're essentially putting a wall down to prevent the Bermuda from getting in. And it needs to be deep enough, and I don't know exactly how deep to tell you on that. Probably, I'd probably say about 10 inches. Uh, that might do it. Uh, but that's not very practical, but that would be another way for a longer term. But what you find is that uh, it comes over the top, and once those nodes hit the ground, it starts rooting, and there it is in the flower bed anyway. Just jump the wall that you put in. Uh, so I, I think that's probably your best bet. Uh, but for St. Augustine, it's not really a problem. Just occasionally a little bit of edging on the side, and it'll do good. Uh, let's see, uh, Suzanne asked a question. She said that she read online not to put eggshells in the compost pile as they do not decompose. What do I think? Well, uh, whenever you start a question, Suzanne, with I read online, uh, it gets, sends a chill up my spine because I wonder, well, what now? Because <laughs> online there is all kinds of misinformation in horticulture, not research-based, which we try to do. You can put eggshells in a compost pile. There's no problem with that. But other than being than looking tea-stained, five years later, they're still going to look like the same eggshell, maybe crumbled a little bit. It's not like all of the calcium just gets released to all your plants. So there's nothing wrong with it, but I would say there's essentially nothing to be gained by it. If you need calcium, go buy some and put it down at the right rate. Uh, don't count on the eggshells. I know that people love to do that, but it's just not neither here nor there. It's not going to hurt, not going to help. I hope that helped with the question, Suzanne, and thank you for that question. Well, you've been listening to Garden Success. We are here every Thursday to answer your gardening questions, and we look forward to talking to you about what's of interest to you. So if you've got any neighbors that are gardeners or want to be, I hope you'll tell them about the show every Thursday noon from 12 to 1, and perhaps we can talk to them too. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley.